the one thing that I consistently see is these kids are brilliant. Like they have so much to offer and it, it really is a skill. So I always try to frame it. It's a superpower. You just have to know how to use it. It can, it can be destructive if you don't know how to use it. Richard Branson, Michael Phelps, Justin Timberlake, James Carville. Wait a minute. Where are the women? Greta Gerwig, Lisa Ling, Audra McDonald, Simone Biles. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of industries. They all have ADHD, but you don't hear much about that now, do you? You know what else you don't hear about? Are the 43% of people with ADHD who are in excellent mental health. Why aren't we talking about them and what they're doing right? I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka, and that's exactly what we do here. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, and now the author of my new book, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm also a certified ADHD coach and the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a patented system that helps ADHD women just like you get unstuck and fall in love with their brilliant brains. Here, we embrace our too muchness and we focus on our strengths. My guests and I credit our ADHD for some of our greatest gifts. And to those who still think they're too much, too impulsive, too scattered, too disorganized, I say no one ever made a difference by being too little. Hello, hello. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode number 254 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at, wait a minute, I changed the name, ADHDforsmartwomen.com. My purpose, as you know, is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it in the thousands of ADHD women that I've had the privilege of meeting. I've never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something, not a one. So for all of these reasons, I am just delighted to introduce you to Nancy Smith. Nancy has a BS in psychobiology from Fairfield University in Connecticut and a master's and doctorate from the University of Connecticut. She has taught at the college level to eat gifted elementary kids at a private school and home educated her six children for 18 years <laughs> are neurodiverse. Nancy is also certified with program for the education and enrichment of relational skills. I guess it's called peers social skills program and evidence-based social skills program for preschoolers, adolescents, and young adults with autism, ADHD, anxiety, depression, and other socio-emotional concerns. She's an expert in teaching executive function skills to children and adolescents, runs improv classes for kids on the spectrum. And if that's not enough, she currently is training to become an ADHD certified clinical services provider. She lives on the West Coast with her two pit bull mixed dogs, sibling cats, two guinea pigs, and five chickens. Welcome, Nancy. Did I get all of that right? You did. Welcome. I, I, welcome. Hello. <laughs> so, Sorry. you know what's so really funny, Nancy, is as I was going through your bio and how much you've done, I couldn't help but laugh because we connected a while ago because I had asked on this podcast for people who 
were knowledgeable around autism and ADHD. And I wanted them to send me a message and raise their hand. And you did this, but then you told me you didn't consider yourself an expert. And just so our audience knows, I cut half of your experience and certifications out because we would have been here all day. And that's such an ADHD (laughs) thing, right? We don't ever think we've done enough. No, no. Yeah. and And I always, it's always amazing when your guests say, wow, did I do all that? And I, yeah, I feel the same way. Yeah, it's absolutely. Like, wow. So you're even impressing yourself. <laughs> yeah, totally. So I know that you have not been formally diagnosed with ADHD, but as you told me, you're very confident that you do have an ADHD brain and there's so much neurodiversity in your family. So I would love to know what was Nancy like as a child? I was very outgoing. But I realized that later that I'm really an introvert and being around people makes me tired. (laughs) You know, I need like, I need that decompression time, but I didn't realize that. So, so why were you so outgoing then? I don't know. I just felt like, I don't know. I felt like I had to be, I guess. Okay. So it was a masking strategy basically. Okay. And so I always did well at school and I hear that. Your guests say that all the time. School is very easy for me until I got to college. Yep. What happened in college? Uh, My first semester, I went in as pre-med. So I had all these difficult... You too? Okay. (laughs) All these pre-den, but it was um, the same classes. Yeah. Yeah. And it was... um, I had like organic chemistry and biology for majors and all these other classes. And I was taking a philosophy class because it was part of the core and I was failing. I was getting my first F ever in my life. And I was just like, wait, I always thought I was smart and now I'm not. (laughs) So (laughs) luckily my advisor or not my advisor, my uh, teacher realized that, you know, that what was going on, that it was just, everything was just too much. I was just adjusting. So he let me drop the class and then I eventually retook it another semester and I did fine. I got an A, but it was just, it was a real eye opener. So you were worried about dropping out of college? Oh, no, no, no. I never thought I'd drop out, but I was just like, I was mortified. I just, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I didn't know what to do, but I, and I didn't realize this until I look back. Like I've always had that noise sensitivity. I could never understand how people could study with music on and in the dorms and all that. And, um, and I know some people think better with music. I just like, I was so distracted and, um, with just the amount of work, it was just, oh my gosh, you know, like, how am I supposed to do all this? And, um, so yeah, that's pretty much. Were you good with planning your time or were you like me? where you kind of crammed everything in, the, I mean, the night before, no doze, didn't go to sleep. I kind of did both. Like, that's one thing is I've always been really good with planning. And mm-hmm. I think that's a coping mechanism because it, it helps with the overwhelm. I'm very organized and I plan everything, but then I'd still somehow end up like staying up all night too. And just, it was like both. I was doing both. Do you think that 
It was also the major. There was no real interest. It was more, this is what you're supposed to do if you're smart, right? You're supposed to go to medical school. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I, I switched to psychology because I, w- I was really interested in that. And like, I never looked back after that. But it was, it was better when I switched because I felt it was more for me, you know. And what about the organization of being on your own for the first time? I'm assuming you lived in the dorms or did you? Yeah. Con- okay. No, in you the lived, dorms. You lived in the dorms. You didn't have parents who provided the structure, which I'm assuming they did when you were in high school. Mm-hmm. You know, just things like what most of us, you know, if we're lucky and privileged get, you know, a parent who does our laundry, you know, who helps us just, you know, make sure that we don't forget things that makes our meals, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, I'd always um, been organized in that way too, like, you know, taking care of my own clothes and and that kind of stuff. But it was really hard. Like suddenly there was more hours in the day and it was just like, you know, you could be up and nobody's going to tell you, no, you can't, you know, go down to the student center at 11 o'clock at night and hang out. That was hard. That was really hard. So it was balancing this new freedom around a social life and also balancing the stuff that you need to do to live, right? And then this workload, which it sounds like was maybe more than you got in high school. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And studying all these subjects that you don't even care about. That yeah. was probably a big one. <laughs> that was, yes, that was hard. So you figured it out. You switched to psychology. Everything got easier. Yeah, I think so. And I always, I always knew I wanted to go continue with school. And uh-huh. I think probably part of that was because it was structure and I knew what to expect. You know, yeah. when I look back at it, I think, okay, well, you know, I went four years, might as well go five more, and, you know, and because yeah. I, I did, it was, it was, it was security almost, you know, just like, um, I had a plan. Right. And, and, so, and there's so much positive emotion, right? If you do well in school. Yeah. Yeah. You know how to do it. Yep. Okay. So what happened when you graduated and got out into the workforce? So I worked for a year after I graduated at Yale University. I'm from Connecticut originally. And uh, I was a research assistant in the psychology department and uh, child study center. And I also, um, it wasn't part of my job description, but they asked me and I was a TA. They asked me to TA for a statistics class. And um, that was really fun. So, um, but all the while I knew it wasn't a permanent job. So um, yeah, and then I applied to graduate school and got in and just went. And that was pretty easy too? Um, yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, because I loved it. I loved what I was doing. So I definitely, I have always had an interest-based nervous system. I did not know what that was before, but now everything makes sense when I look back. Why don't you explain that? So when I'm, when I'm interested in something, that's why, and and I know you say this all the time on your podcast, and I feel like I know you because I, I know you listen to you so much, but it's so funny that it's just that when, um, it's not lack of focus. When I find the thing 
that I love. I'm just like right there, you know, and, and it's not hard because it's, it's a joy, you know? And so it was always, I loved what I was doing. I loved the psychology. I loved that it was a plan. You know, I knew you do this, 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 and then you're going to finish. I think you're absolutely right about that because for those that actually did pretty well in school and didn't struggle in school, it really is about this sense that as much as we balk against structure and systems, when we can have the structure and systems within the things that we enjoy doing, life is so much easier, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And um, so a big part of it too was like uh, um, after my my kids were born, I was, um, I was pregnant with a second daughter when I defended my, uh, dissertation. And then, um, I stayed home with, with the kids and when they were young and I was just not having structure was really hard for me. It was just like, oh my gosh, what do I do? You know? And, um, so that, that was really difficult. And so now when I coach a lot of clients, I can, I can see that that's like, that's like the number one thing that causes stress for a lot of people. Just like, okay, you can, and, and it's like, you know, you have the whole day to do something, but then you don't end up doing it because you think, oh, I have all kinds of time, but you know, um, and if you so think that was that, really hard, I wonder, Nancy, if, I mean, you're a new mom, you've got these two little kids And yes, there are things on your list that you really wanted to accomplish and you beat yourself up for not accomplishing it. But if you really look to see at all the things you actually were accomplishing that there, but they weren't your things, right? They weren't the things that you wanted to intentionally get done for you. Right. But they were really important for your kids. Oh yeah, definitely. And I, I absolutely loved being home and I, I think that was so important. And then, you know, adding on to our family, it was yeah. really my third. Yeah, um, <laughs> it was my my third child, a son. He's now twenty five, and he got a diagnosis of autism ADHD when he was eight. And this was back in the day when I had to explain to people what autism was, and I didn't really even know. I had heard about it in graduate school. We talked about it briefly in one class, but it wasn't it wasn't like it is today. So even though you were studying psychology for all of this time, you really didn't know what autism was. That's that's no. inter- that's insane, actually. But yeah, I know. Well, at the at the time, so this was you know back in the let's see the the nineties. It was just one of those things that was kind of obscure, and people didn't know a lot about it. Mm-hmm. So he started having a lot of behavior problems and just he would scream for hours. And like, we didn't know it was like, you know, he was, it, it was sensory stuff. We didn't know any of that. And okay, so, so with that for a second here. So can you tell us what did autism look like? Because it's like ADHD, right? You meet one person with ADHD, you've met one person with ADHD, just so we can get a sense of, right. you know, Right. He was always very driven by um, topics and he'd get stuck on a topic, but 
you know, I'm kind of like that too. So it wasn't like, I was like, oh, that's great. You know, he was reading chemistry textbooks when he was in elementary school, like perfect, like college level textbooks. My husband would bring them home from work for him and he understood it. And he's probably one of the smartest people, both him and my husband, just so intelligent. But then the the behaviors were just like, he could just scream for hours and hours. And um, so what would he be screaming about? There must've been a reason to be upset about. Oh yeah, yeah. It was like the feel of the tags on his clothes. He would like, and, and I, he would like pull at his clothes and, um, you know, now they make those tagless shirts and everything. Yeah. yeah. They didn't have that. I had to cut all the tags out of his clothes. But now he's screaming, he's screaming about the tags on his clothes. So at that point in time, you must have not understood that that really, really is upsetting to him. Mm-hmm. Well, no, actually, I kind of did because I have some sensory stuff like I don't. I don't like certain feelings of material and stuff. And I just figured, you know, everybody has things like that. Or it would be food, textures. That was really hard for, you know, it was like mealtimes were just chaos. And I didn't know what to do. So finally, when he got diagnosed, I had my fifth child was three months old. And I was thrown into what I now know is called crisis mode. And I would be just sitting on the internet for hours and hours trying to figure out what to do. And so I learned all about sensory processing issues and um, just about everything I could read about autism. I had to explain it to people. It was called, he was technically diagnosed with Asperger's, but now they call it autism. I understand that a lot of parents in the autism community are like, nope, I'm still calling it Asperger's. <laughs> Is that true? I know, I know. I, I don't know. You know, it's, it's like whatever. It, it makes more sense to me to call it something different because, but that's just how well, then I you understand, about it. Right? When you use the term, I think the person who's receiving the information understands more, okay, what that right. looks like. Right, right. And I always thought it was kind of weird to call it high-functioning autism because... The intelligence, unbelievable memory, all that, but could not remember to change his clothes and yeah. stuff like that. And so, but it was like on some level, I could, I could understand him because I was like, well, you know, that's uncomfortable, you know? So all the, the years, just all the reading that I did and I knew he could not function in a regular school. And at the time we, we moved from, uh, uh, we were living in Kentucky. We lived there for four years while my husband was doing a postdoc at the University of Kentucky. And mm-hmm. then we moved here and we started homeschooling. And it just, it was a really good, it was a really good fit for us because I, I enjoy learning. So it was like, oh, this is awesome. So I get to, and I get to go back and learn things that I didn't really learn. Like things like history finally made sense to me. I was like, oh, why didn't they teach it this way? It's so interesting. You know, there's so much there. So, so yeah, that was, that was really good. But I, that was my, um, kind of in the trenches learning, like sort of just being thrown into it and just figuring it out. 
but I've always been really good with challenges. So I was like, okay, well, you weren't bored. No, because six <laughs> kids. So I want to know what did their homeschool schedule look like? Was this a situation where there were a bunch of families that kind of, you know, get together and they hire a teacher for this, a teacher for that? Or did you do all the teaching? I did it. I did it all. How Um, did you do that? I don't know. I just did it because I I had to. And it would never work for us. We tried a co-op one time, but um, just getting everybody out of the house was like too hard. So um, I made schedules. And there was some subjects we did together. We did Latin, we did Greek, you know, we did anything that was, um, you know, we could do anything we needed to do or wanted to do, which was really nice. So, and then the older girls became more independent so they could, you know, give them the work. And, but there was always, no matter how much I planned and I would have schedules planned and all this, and then something would go wrong. And the whole day was like, oh my gosh, what just happened? Well, I don't know how, you know, you have this basket full of kids, six, half a dozen, and some of them are ADHD. Some of them are ADHD and autism. Like how, how do you get them to do what you're, it's like herding cats to me, you know, that they listen to, I mean, sometimes kids, often kids struggle to listen to their teacher and they don't live with their teacher. How in the world did you do this? You're their mom. Uh, It was, it was difficult. It was difficult. And, um, but somehow I feel like I didn't screw it up too bad because when they grad, like my oldest ones, when they graduated, they were able to assimilate right into college. Um, some days I cried a lot. Um, it, it was just, it was very difficult. Um, and especially with the behavior challenges, um, yes. cause my son was very aggressive and, you know, we'd have to call the police and it was just, it was horrible. When he was old. When he got older, like at, when he hit puberty, like teenager, and everything just intensified. And that was really difficult. But I'm so, and so happy and proud of... Yeah, go ahead. With hindsight, I'm curious. You look back now. Now, your kids are all great, right? No problems. You look back with hindsight... What was it that was upsetting him so much? And if you had to do it again, would you do anything differently? Because I suspect that he was just trying to communicate to you about something or and your husband. It always falls on the wife, it seems to be, or the woman. I would assume that he was just unhappy with how things were going because it didn't work for him. And he was trying to communicate that. And he didn't know how else to do it but get aggressive. Or is that an mm-hmm. incorrect assumption? No, it, it was, it was anxiety. Uh-huh. It was so much anxiety all the time. It was his thoughts and he'd start thinking about something and ruminating and getting upset. And then everything would spiral from there. Uh, it was, it was difficult, but my two older daughters were all, have always been so good with him. Yeah. So they could like intuitively, like they know, and they're still really great with him um and they can they they would be like hey you want to go try this you want to go do this and sometimes they could calm him down better than i could but it was when he we started trying different medications and he was around 12 and we the first thing we started on intunive and the um non-stimulant it didn't really help 
And then um, he also had a sleep disorder, which made it very difficult. So it was like he'd be up, he'd be up all night and sleep during the day. So that was really hard. Um, but and we we also tried Ritalin with him, and it worked really well. But it sent his anxiety through the roof, so we couldn't use it anymore. But it was awesome. He was like so focused and everything. But now I'm so proud of him. He's he's in college, um, and when we got his medications adjusted, mm-hmm. finally it was. It's like he's a different person. So the aggression really wasn't him. It was induced by the medication. No. Yes. Or, am I well, right or well, um, it sometimes or lack of the right medication. Okay. So you think it was, it was both. Yeah. Oh, definitely. It was that he needed medication. Some of the medications you tried made the aggression worse, but he mm-hmm. would have been aggressive regardless. And so when you were able to get him on the right medication, then everything leveled. Okay. That's really oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's what like, and, and, and I, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear that. What ultimately ended up working medication wise or it's anything? A, it's a whole, it's a whole different cocktail of things. Um, but one of the big things was actually Depakote, which is normally used for epilepsy, but it's used as a mood stabilizer. And that's what they were using it from. Um, and so, I, I mean, it, just seeing what he went through and, and seeing like it wasn't his fault what was going on with his brain. And that's kind of my message that I want the parents that I work with to know that it's kids can do well if they can't, you know, if they can do well, they will. Yeah. Dr. Ross Green, right? Exactly. Ross Green. Yeah. yeah. If they're not doing well, they don't have the skills. We need to help them. Yes. And that's, I, uh, I always say it's not a matter of wills. It's a matter of lack of skills. And so the nice thing about executive functioning, it can all be taught. They're all skills. So how long did it take you and him to level his medication, get everything right where he really turned the corner? And I wonder too, was it also hormones? Part you of know, it. That yeah, that made everything hard. worse. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that definitely makes everything all teenagers, worse. Not all, but many teenagers are like that anyway, right? Right. Right. I was a really good teenager, but I remember just the overwhelm as far as the emotion. Like I felt things even stronger, right? Than I had felt them in the past. And when I would get upset, it was just like I was so upset and about silly things. Mm-hmm. Right. It, yeah. It's a, a lot of it was hormones and, but, um, it took years to get the right medication. It was hard to find continuity in medical care. Um, it took a lot of, we had to push a lot for a lot of things, but once he got on that, I mean, and he's always been like very sweet. And like when he would have an episode afterwards he'd cry and he'd apologize and you know it was so I knew it like it wasn't him but I learned so much from him and that whole experience and just I I feel such compassion for parents because I get what they're going through and I get how hard it is 
And so I really tried to focus on, okay, you know, it's not their fault. It's not the kid's fault. And um, yeah. All want to do well. I mean, all you have to do is ask yourself that question. Why would anybody not want to do well? We're not doing well because we can't do well. We don't know how to do well, right? Right, right. It's like, yeah, you're not going to choose to melt down and scream in front of your friends if you're, if that's the only alternative left. So, yeah, so that's a big, that's a big part of, of my work is doing that, um, helping parents with that. And I, I also do, I, t- I tutor or coach adults too on, um, on Wisent, which is a, another website. Uh, it's like a tutoring website. And I actually have several adult clients that have ADHD. And um, so I, I can, I, it's like, I can just understand them. So I'm curious if you can tell us with your kiddos and your ADHD slash autism clients, what do you see as the primary distinction between ADHD versus, oh, there's ADHD and also autism? So what do those kids, young adults, adults have that is different? They, and this, this part always breaks my heart, but they, they have such a desire for connection. And at first, you know, people would say in the back in the beginning of the, all the autism stuff that, you know, they're aloof or they don't, they want to withdraw from society, but they don't know Are we how. talking about autistic kids? So if you have ADHD, you've got, you know, the ADHD symptoms, but when you add autism, you've noticed that there is more a desire to connect with other people. Right, right. And it's because it's a spectrum, it's hard to even define yeah. that line, Yeah, which is what. So that's why I have a lot of 2E or twice exceptional students. And um, that's, they really want to connect with other people. They just don't know how. And so that's a big, that's a big focus for me. And, and, and other ones like um, other times, it's just because of that impulsiveness that they can't make friends because they, you know, blurt out stuff they're not supposed to say, and they don't really understand what's wrong with that. And so um, it's, it's really just that education in the social aspects one of my classes that I teach is called Hidden Curriculum. And it's based on, that's a book that was written by um, an autism expert. And and so it's loosely based on that. But I always start the class by saying, there's skills that are taught and then there's other stuff that's caught. And people just expect you to know the caught stuff. That's, you know, how close to stand somebody, to somebody, how um, when to stop talking when somebody else is talking and things like that. So when you um, say, caught, I really, when you say caught, you mean that nobody really teaches that you just sort of pick it up. Okay. Yeah. 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 You just pick it up and like the social skills aspect. I have this premise and I'm curious what you think about it. You know, people will say about people with ADHD that, um, we struggle with social skills. And I'm like, no, I don't think people with purely ADHD struggle with social skills. In fact, because of the intuition, I often think that they are better 
add social skills than other people. If we don't do something, it's because we don't care. It's more an oppositional type of thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Versus, no, I'm not going to go do that because I don't want to do it, you know? Versus mm-hmm. when you put autism in the mix, it really is not understanding social cues. So when you see someone with ADHD who doesn't understand social cues that speak, you know, that comes too closely, speaks too loudly, it's usually autism in the mix as well. And I, I'd love to know what you think about that. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Totally agree with that. And the one thing that I consistently see is these kids are brilliant. They're just yes. like, they have so much to offer and they have like these facts. Like I'm always learning interesting facts mm-hmm. from my students, like mm-hmm. about things I have no idea about. And, and it's like, that is such a important quality, I think. Um, and it, and now it seems like um, employers are recognizing that yeah. here in Washington. Microsoft has a program specifically for people on the spectrum. And it, it really is a skill. So I always try to frame it. And I think you say this all the time too. It's, it's a superpower. You just have to know how to use it. It's... Yeah. It can, it can be destructive exactly. if you don't know how to use it. That are superpowers. You know, one of the things too with uh, those kids that ADHD and autism and, and adults too, they seem to struggle much less with working memory. In fact, they tend to be closer, certainly in their big area of interest or narrow area of interest with, yeah, it's almost <laughs> like their memory is idiotic. Like they, they don't forget anything. Versus, I think those of us with purely ADHD, our working memory isn't always so good. Mm-hmm. I have seen that. I have seen that too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because, um, and then if you don't have the working memory, it doesn't get through to long-term memory. So, yeah. yeah. We forget. Exactly. And yes. so that's probably why those with purely ADHD we rely more on our intuition and we really develop that and fine tune it and hone it because working memory is usually not so good. Oh, you yeah. Know, it's just, it just comes oh, and yeah. goes versus I think of my son who I believe, and I mean, he's been tested, so I can say this, he'll say it too, that he's definitely on that spectrum and just the way he remembers things. And so then when he speaks, he just sounds so much more intelligent than I ever would because I know what he knows, but I can't remember all the facts to support it. So it becomes more this intuitive kind of, you know, argument. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Five years ago, I created this podcast to learn with you, to learn from you about ADHD and how it affects women. Guest after guest and all the research I've done on the solo episodes confirmed what I had suspected all along that I needed to change the conversation around ADHD because I was certain that we were getting it all wrong. And I knew that because every single time I met another one of you, it confirmed again what I say on this podcast every episode, that I've never met an ADHD woman that wasn't truly brilliant at something, not one. And at this point, we're talking about thousands of ADHD women. So I know I'm right. In all of those five years of recording over 250 episodes, I have not monetized this podcast. That means I've absorbed all the costs. My concern was to do what I thought was best for you, my listeners. I did not want to distract you. 
Since then, we've had over five and a half million downloads. We rank in the top one half percent of all podcasts on any subject in the world. I don't know any podcast with these kinds of numbers that hasn't monetized by taking on sponsors. About two years ago, I started considering sponsors because I was approached daily and I was told I was a fool for not having them. But I haven't been able to find the perfect fit. And so I said no time and time again. I can't take on a sponsor whose product I don't personally use and really see value in for our ADHD brains. I just can't do it. This means I've left a lot of money on the table every single year. Money that, frankly, could have defrayed a lot of expenses. It is very expensive to record a podcast week after week, year after year, pay the audio engineer, the podcast producer, my graphics people, the VA, all the people, right, that make this possible. With that in light, right now, for the first time ever, I have a huge favor to ask of you. I wrote a book called ADHD for Smartass Women with HarperCollins William Morrow. This book was inspired by all of you. In fact, many of your stories are in this book. It is a distilled version of the most important episodes of this podcast to help you and women like you fall in love with your ADHD brain. Everything you need is right here, all in one place, all in one book. So my ask of you is this. If you have ever received any value from this podcast, or if you've ever felt supported by me through this podcast, or if you've ever sent me an email and received a response back or a video back or advice from me, then it would mean the world to me to have your support in return by pre-ordering a copy of my book. Why is it so important to have your pre-order rather than have you order on the day the book comes out? Because pre-orders have historically been viewed as a predictor of a book's success by retailers. Look, if your book is getting buzz before publication date, booksellers give those books more exposure, which makes it more likely that that book will hit the bestseller list. So why is this important? Because the more buzz your book gets, the more reach we get, right? The more women will hear about it. And the natural offshoot of all of this is we can help more women fall in love with their ADHD brain. They no longer need to live in shame. Please help me spread the word and please support this cause. I need to hit a goal of 200 pre-orders every week until publication day. Now, that probably doesn't sound like a big deal, but I am telling you, it is really hard. I need everyone's help. Would you help me by pre-ordering your copy and maybe a copy for... I don't know, all of your friends for the holidays. The book comes out on December 26th after all the holiday craziness subsides, unless, of course, you celebrate Kwanzaa, in which case it's also a perfect Kwanzaa gift because Kwanzaa starts on December 26th. I really appreciate your help. And when you pre-order right now, I've got wonderful bonuses for you that you'll get for free. Bonuses like workshops with me. One on what ADHD really looks like in women. Another on ADHD stress and sleep, specifically how to get better sleep. These are strategies that work, and they're from a former sleep denier, me, who has since been reformed. You can ask my husband. In December, you'll also get our ADHD for Smartass Women appendix, 
where we have created the best strength-focused books, websites, directories, and tools for falling in love with your ADHD brain. All of this for the cost of one $28 book. You can find all the information at ADHDforsmartwomen.com forward slash book. Please stop this podcast and pre-order right now before you forget. I know you. I share your brain. Thank you. One of the things I love about you is you believe in teaching kids to be their own coaches, you know, to really pay attention to what's working for them instead of, okay, this is what you're supposed to do because the experts are saying this is what you're supposed to do. Um, Mm -hmm. and what you said is, you know, with executive functioning already that you want to teach kids how to coach their own brain, right. And to help parents understand that it's not a matter of wills, but what did you say? But a lack of skills, Skills. lack of skills. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Can you talk more about that? How important that is rather than this approach of, okay. Here is this list of things you need to do A, B, C, D. Mm, yeah. So Dr. Lynn Kenny is a pediatric psychologist, and I took several trainings with her. And she's actually the one, that's where I heard coach about coaching your own brain. She's an expert on executive function, and she's a, just a dynamic speaker. She might actually be somebody good to get on the podcast. So that's where I heard the idea of coaching your own brain. I have a class called train your brain. And that's what I tell my students. That's, you know, you're, you know, what's going on inside your head and your thoughts. So instead of, like you said, fitting someone else's checklist, let's see what you can do. And what's interesting in all the development of the executive functions, this self-talk or awareness of that or how you learn and, and how you perceive yourself, that's the very last one to develop out of all of them. And typically, as you know, it's it can be like age 25 or later, especially for people on the spectrum. So the more I like to start, um, you know, that's part of my class, but I try to underscore the importance of like, you have to think about how you learn. You have to think about what makes sense for you. You have to think about what's working and what's not working. And so, uh, yeah, that's a big, that's a big part of what I do, the self-talk, especially because I've always had a problem with it. Um, just like low self-esteem and just, just, you know, bad thoughts about myself and, you know, all that stuff. Can you repeat that part? You've always had a problem with the self-talk and. Yeah. The self-talk, like self-esteem and, um, just like shame. And I hear you guys talk about that all the time on the podcast, because when you think like there's something wrong with me, it's really hard to feel good about yourself. So it's actually been in teaching the students that I've been able to actually do better myself with that, because I see how destructive it is. It's mm-hmm. so destructive. And I think women are particularly... um we, I think women already have problems with that. Just some of it's based on, I think it's based on society. But totally. 
when you're doing it to yourself, you know, it's like, wait, 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 wait a minute. The world is hard enough. We don't need to do this to ourselves too. And so I focus, we t- I, I talk about automatic negative thoughts and how those, you did nothing to cause those thoughts. They pop in your head, right? So when you know that, then you don't have to believe it, first of all. You don't have yeah. to accept it. And you can just say, wait a minute, that's not true. That just happened to pop into my head. That's not true. It's an intrusive thought. And just like being aware of that whole process is um, so important. Yeah. And, it, and it's a full circle, I think, what you're saying, because the reason there's RSD and there's all these negative thoughts is because somewhere in time, you stopped learning how to trust yourself. And so you're, you know, you're basically trusting what everybody else is saying before what you know to be true about you. And so as you say, no, 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 you need to learn how to coach your own brain because you're going to coach it better than anybody else. Exactly. Exactly. And, and everybody's brain is, is, has a different skill profile of with the Mm -hmm. executive functions. Some people are super I'm sorry. Tell Go us, ahead. you've mentioned executive functions a couple of times, and I'm afraid someone might be listening. They might be new. They don't know what that is. Can you explain? Yes. So if you think about the, um, you know, your brain controls your body. I, I explain this simply to my kids like this in the classes. So your brain controls your body, but this part right here behind your forehead, the prefrontal cortex, this controls your brain. So this is the big boss of your brain. And when this part here is in charge, and and then I tell them another word for boss is executive. So that's where the executive functions come from. And the executive functions are all about getting things done, things you do every day. There's planning, organizing, time management, self-talk, self-control or impulse control, getting started or task initiation, which is a big, can be a big problem for people with ADHD. Um, attention, short-term memory or working memory and um, flexible thinking and grit or perseverance, which I think a lot of people with ADHD have, but not always harnessed in the right way or in, the, in a productive way, I should say. And then emotion regulation, problem solving, What's interesting to me is they always throw problem solving into that bailiwick, that that's supposed to be something that we struggle with. Yet we know that so many of us are such good problem solvers. So what is that about? Any idea? That's really, that's really interesting because maybe the overwhelm. Yes, it could be. And we just kind of shut down um, Mm. because there's, you know, there's too much, but at the same time, I think a lot of, we don't realize how creative we are. Like I never thought of myself as a creative person, even though, you know, I taught myself art and all this stuff. Like I still, and sometimes when I listen to your podcast, that I hear other people say that and it's so true. And I think right. the fact that we do find so many different ways to solve problems, but we don't realize it. And it's not necessarily in the same way that everybody else does. It's so maybe works the function problem with ADHD and problem solving is we are actually not using it because again, we don't trust ourselves. We don't understand it. So we don't believe it. It could be. Yeah, it could be. 
or that we're just, we're just solving the problem in a different way and Ah. and just a different like process. So, yeah. So that's why it's really important to think about, and I always tell my students this too, to focus on your strengths because we all have them, even if we think we don't. So yeah, we all have stuff we have to work on. We always will, you know, because we're not, we're not perfect, but you're the best coach of your own brain because you're in it from the inside and you know how you're thinking. You know what works, right? And what doesn't. Yeah, exactly. So much of this, you know, like oppositional defiant disorder, so much of that comes from constantly being told, no, that's not the right way. And you know, it's the right way for you. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm oppositional in those situations too. Yep. Yep. I was listening to your, your bonus recording about that. And yeah, I totally agree. You think, all right, let me try it my way. You know, it's not oppositional. It's, I think differently um, or stubborn stubborn people are, you know, called stubborn, but, but it's only I stubborn to call them, it. right? Because we're not doing it their way. So maybe they're the ones that are stubborn. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah. I like to call it tenacious. Totally. Totally. Okay. So I want to talk about improvisation because I don't know, I'm not sure it's reticular activating system, right? But literally over the past four to five weeks, you are like, okay, so maybe it's six weeks. You are the fourth guest who has told me that they love improv and how helpful it is, which I find so weird because improv, I understand why someone with ADHD would be really good at it. And I know that if I I am good in those situations, but I cannot imagine like being on stage or being watched by other people and having to come up with these things really quickly. So I want to know, Why do you like it so much? Because I know you teach around it too. And why is it so helpful? Okay. So the first part is that like, it's not improv in like, I'm going to get on stage kind of thing. It's more improv in like getting used to being okay with talking to other people and kind of getting over that. It's also, it's so much about flexible thinking because you have to be flexible because there's something in improv called yes and. And what that means is when somebody says something, instead of correcting them, you add to it. You say, yes, you agree. And then you add to it. So it's like, it's really building a sense of community. But a lot of my students have a problem with correcting other people and just, no, 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 that's not right. And um, so like, I always use this as an example, like if and this is just the polished rock that I keep on my desk. And like in the improv class, if I say, this is an egg, right? They can't say, no, that's not an egg. That's a rock. They have to say, oh, wow, I never seen such a flat purple rock. That's really cool. And that reminds me of this. And so you add on to it. And so I like it because there's, there's a real flow to it. Can you back up for a second? So I'm thinking improv comedy. Okay. I'm thinking get up on stage and someone says, here's the scene. Tell us what improv means in your book. Okay. So yeah, no, it's not that. I would never (laughs) get up on stage. Basically what it means is like, it's kind of like living in the moment. That can be something that's really hard for a lot of kids and a lot of grownups as well. Like, cause we're always like on to the next thing. 
and we're thinking about. But with improv, you have to be there and you have to be like, okay, what is needed right now? What is important right now? And instead of also always formulating what I'm going to answer, you just kind of answer. But are you guys in a group? Are you physically yeah, it's in a on group Zoom. together? No. Oh, you do it on Zoom? It's all on Zoom. And then, okay, yeah. so what would you say? Like, would you come up with a scenario? And then, like, how, how does it look? Okay, so one of my favorite exercises, and the kids absolutely love this, is called Professor Genius. And so they get, to, they love, you know, having expertise. But in this one, when we do this, the person who's the professor knows everything about everything. There's nothing they don't know. And so the other students ask them questions and they have to answer them. So, and sometimes they're just outlandish and ridiculous. Ridiculous meaning like doesn't have to be realistic. So, you know, they'll say like, I don't know, why is the sky blue? Or, or there's a lot of times they'll, they'll ask like a really hard math problem or something like that. And then the professor has the answer and they have to, you know, they, they obviously don't always know all the answers, but they have to answer kind of in a way like, oh, yes, this is the answer, you know, and they have a ball with it. It's just so much fun. And the other one is um, that we do is called late for school, late for school or late for dinner. So some of them are homeschooled, so they'll pick, they don't go to school. So, you know, and they want to be accurate. So <laughs> I said, okay, that's fine. So I said, I said, I'll say, why are you so late for school? And they make up this big excuse as why they're late, but it's always funny. Like it can involve aliens and it, it's a lot with imagination and it's kind of harnessing that imagination piece. Some kids don't have that and they don't understand it because they're like, wait a minute, that's not true, you know, but they're learning to be okay with that. But other kids have really great imaginations and it kind of gives them something to run with. So the improv is more about, um, it's definitely not like, and it's not necessarily comedy is it's just more learning to be okay with who you are, accepting yourself and, um, being in the moment. That's what it's really about. Yeah. And it's been fun to see the kids. Well, it's something they enjoy doing, then it's going to be much more effective, right? Positive emotion Mm -hmm. and yeah, they're excited about it. I just had this thought about this distinction between when you add um, autism, what does it look like? And I'm wondering if you think I'm on the right track. I think of people with ADHD and certainly myself, like really concerned about authenticity, wanting to be original, wanting to be who we are. And when you add the autism label, for lack of a better word, onto the ADHD, it's almost like that authenticity is on super drive, where if someone is saying something wrong and incorrect, someone with autism will just go right in there and say, no, you're wrong. Versus with yep. ADHD, yep. we'll pull in the intuition, we'll pull in the social skills, and we'll decide, is it worth the battle? Yes. So there's a little bit more thought around people and how it might be received. And sometimes there's a lot yes. of thought around that to the point where you're not even being who you are because you're so worried about, you know, what everybody else is going to think like that whole RSD. Thing. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that's really hard for some of the kids. And the other thing about the improv is that there's no wrong answers there. 
But if they say, like, if another kid says something and they, it's, it's kind of funny sometimes, like, the, the other kid knows that it's factually inaccurate. They'll yeah. say that and then I'll remind them, like, no, remember, we're just playing. And it's just like, it, it's just kind of like a fun way to use your social skills in a way that's not threatening. And eventually they get it usually, but it can be very hard for some, for some of the kids. I mean, we in society, part of being, you know, in society, all of these white lies that we tell, right? We really do to make sure we don't hurt people's feelings. And, and, you know, some of them are just silly little things, but some of them are major. And if you see that, I, sometimes I struggle with that, you know, where, no, this is BS, right? But we right. have to do it to be a member of group, society, whatever. And sometimes sometimes that's why we can't be part of that group because it all mm-hmm. just feels fake. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's definitely a big thing with these kids. They're like, well, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to say I don't know, you know, and, um, yeah. but it's, it's a learning process it, and, and, it's a safe place for them to kind of practice that because we really don't, we don't get a chance to do that. We just have to do it. We just have to pretend and mask and all that stuff. So, yeah. Well, and as you said, I'm trying to remember what it was. Oh my gosh. What was it that you were saying that was really interesting? Now it's completely gone. And you know how the more you try to keep it. Yeah. It keeps going slippery. Yeah. But you said something really good. I promise, Nancy. So I would like to know, what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? I exercise. You have to exercise. Oh my gosh. I hear your, your uh, guests say that all the time and it's 100% true. I have to. And just to have that outlet, that physical outlet. So I do um, Pilates and um, uh, Qigong. Mm-hmm. And um, just because I can't, I can't like sit there and meditate. Qigong is like a moving meditation. So, which is really nice. And, um, but I think that's, that's a really important to exercise and then, um, to get the self-talk under control or to at least be aware of it. Because once you're aware of it, yes, then you can question it. Exactly. Exactly. Instead of just, wait a minute, I have to believe everything I think. (laughs) I know. Yeah. I want to say something about uh, two things about the exercise. So I know there's going to be people who hear that and right away they shut down because they hate exercise. It's not, it doesn't have to be, you know, go out and run. It doesn't have to be any of that kind of organized exercise. It just has to be move your mind, right? Exactly. But it has to be something you enjoy doing. You have to start there, right? Because otherwise you're not going to do it. My guest, Kaylin Johnson, um, I talked to her this week as well. She's coming up and um, she made such an important point. She said, part of our issue is energy. And so if we have all this energy in our body, anytime you have energy, it's going to stay there unless you get it out. And if you've got all of this energy, too much energy is not a good thing right? Because then you just start doing that spinning thing and overwhelm and you can just feel it. You're amping up your nervous system. And so her comment was, you've got to get that out. And so the more somatic type things of the body type things you can do to get Mm -hmm. it out, the better you're going to feel. 
and the more regulated your nervous system is going to be. And so that's why we always talk about exercise, right? Because it's the quickest way to get rid of all that, I'll call it nervous energy that, you know, affects our nervous system. Yeah. 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 Which actually is, they call it chi. So that's been so helpful for me to understand that because basically what, what happens is it's, it's like it has, the energy has to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. And if you don't get it out, it goes to your thoughts and then you start spinning and yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's brilliant. So it's physical energy, right? So it's the hyperactive, Mm -hmm. whatever. But if we don't get it out, then it becomes hyperactive in our brain. Which yeah. is already what you do, right? <laughs> overthinking everything, yes. overthinking. Yes. Yes. So yeah. Really good. Really good. Do you have a number one ADHD workaround? Um, yes. Probably about six, seven months ago, I just found out about this. I was like, how did I not know this? It's called Keep and it's part of Google. I don't know if you know this, um, but it looks like a little, um, it looks like a little light bulb on a yellowish orange background and it's free and it's basically you can put all your lists in there you can put check boxes so um you know i'd have lists everywhere but then i'd lose a list or i'd not look at it and so this is all in one place because you always have your phone or your computer and so you could actually create different areas like i have a list for books i want to read i have a list for um, art projects I want to do. I have a list for daily list of things I have to do. And then I just kind of go through and check it out. I was like, how did I not know this? I've been using Google for years and somebody told me about it. So maybe somebody hears about it and tries it, but, um, it's life changing. It's so good. Well, and it calms your brain down, right? Because now you know, exactly. You're not worried, like, what scrap of paper did I write that on? What file did I put it in on my computer? <laughs> like, oh my gosh, Dropbox, put me in the head. And so I'm wondering on key, does it only search by title or will it search by anything that you've got written in key? I think it searches by anything. It's like a visual bear app, which is what I use, bear like in the animal. Oh, okay. I haven't seen that. Free, much, but- I'll have to look at it. Um, there's another one called Obsidian. That's a little harder to navigate. I don't use it that much, but this is like if you want to connect your thoughts and it, it's, yeah, you'd have to, I don't even know how to explain it because it's a little complicated, but the, yeah, the keep is just, it's just got everything in one place. And then this way, like if you think of something, you know, okay, where does this fit? Like, you know, is this like a household chore or something? And then you don't have like 50 different lists and it's right there. And then you can check it off and you can dress it up with pictures if you want and color code it and all that stuff. So it's really nice. Yeah. That's what I remember about it is it was very visual. So if you're a visual person and it's just comforting, it really is. I mean, the minute I got organized in place, it makes such a difference. Not Mm -hmm. only... Mm-hmm. to my brain and just that I feel more in control, but also like I'm not wasting all this time looking for stuff. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I agree. So Nancy, where can people find you if they want to know more about you and what you do? Okay. So I teach on outschool.com and this is for kids up to age 18. 
So if you look up out school, uh, it Nancy Norelli Smith is what you'd search for there. And I think I sent you a link too. And then I also do executive function coaching on Wisent, which is um, a tutoring website. And I come up as Nancy S and it's Nancy with an I. Okay. So the links will be in the show notes. Thank you so much for spending time with us here today. This was fun. Thank you. This is definitely fun. Thank you so much. Oh, and congratulations on your book. I'm so excited for you. Yeah, I know. So much work still to do, but yeah, I can't believe it's done. It's done. Anyway, thank you again. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Nancy, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal, you know, is to change the conversation around ADHD and help as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me over at ADHDforsmartwomen.com. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. Join us at ADHDforsmartwomen.com where you can find more information on my new book, ADHD for Smartass Women, and my patented Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system to help you get unstuck and fall in love with your brilliant brain.